0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com,
1: and of course,
2: on the Bloomberg.
1: The question I have is, when have we reached peak
2: panic? Peak capitulation? Yeah. No idea. So we ask someone. Gina Martin-Adams joins us now, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. Gina joining us on the phone. Gina, fantastic to catch up with you. Let's talk about that. Have we seen full-on capitulation yet? With a VIX at 80, I'd like to think we have, have we? Uh,
3: Yeah, one would think. Um, We looked back at history on a number of measures, and I think that between breadth and volatility, you're seeing signs of potentially peak panic. Usually that peak panic creates some degree of a bottom in stocks, It doesn't mean that we're going to hit the price bottom precisely. And As a matter of fact, when we look at history, you look at things like the VIX peaked in the fall of 20, 2008, for example, and we didn't actually find our bottom until March of 2009. Um, the percentage of stocks trading above their 50-day moving average has fallen below 1% on the S&P 500. That, on average, occurs at peak panic, but proceeds, on average, the bottom in stocks by about 30 days. So, it doesn't mean that peak panic necessarily is bottom, but it does usually indicate the early signs of a bottoming process beginning. I think we're there. It's just a matter of time before we reach our full on bottom. Uh, The technicals have obviously been horrible. I mean, you know, we've broken through every cyclical support line that we have. We've now broken through the secular support line for the bull market trend. We've kind of got really weak support at 2018 lows to look forward to next. Uh, That said, After sort of peak panic moments, your 12-month returns are always positive, and usually positive by double digits. So investors with some degree of patience, uh, thinking about averaging in in environments of peak panic, are likely to be rewarded over the long term.
1: So Gina, as you speak, I'm picking up on a couple of themes, charts, history, all these things that people are saying – are no longer relevant to the current situation that we have because this is an unprecedented situation where the global economy is literally shutting down for an unknown period of time. How do you get conviction on what to even look at based on history, based on technical levels, based on the fact that we don't know what the earnings are going to be at these companies? We don't know when people are actually going to start going out again and going to restaurants and buying stuff in stores. Yeah.
3: Well, these are the same things, Lisa, that you hear in every new crisis. So, you know, while people will say charts are irrelevant, while people will say we can't find a valuation bottom, we don't know where earnings are headed, that's the type of commentary that you hear in peak panic, where people are, you know, scared of where things are headed, Yes, this crisis is different, but recall the Great Financial Crisis was also very different and everyone was panicking and completely uncertain as to where things will go. September 11th, clearly a major attack on U.S. soil had never happened, created panic in that environment as well. We didn't know what the outcomes were going to look like. So as much as we want to say this time is different, it's not different in that it's just a new version of a crisis that we have to contend with. Um, Yes, we don't know where earnings are headed, and there is a complete information vacuum with respect to the fundamental outlook, and that's going to continue to weigh on confidence and sentiment. But there are very reliable indicators and lessons that we can get from the market itself to give us some guide, and I believe that we find that in every crisis even though every crisis is brand new and something we haven't dealt with before.
2: Well, let's talk about history just a little bit. JP Morgan crunching the numbers in the same way I'm sure your team has done as well, Gina. The last three recessions, seeing PE multiples of 10.1, 13.8, and 10.2. Just walk me through the current multiple right now and how on earth we get our hands around what the E looks like for that current multiple.
3: Yeah, so what typically happens is investors look at the forward multiple as most indicative of the environment and where we're going to bottom. The trouble with looking at that multiple in the environment that we're at right in right now is we truly have no indication of where earnings are headed over the next 12 months. Um, guidance has completely dried up. Uh, We're not going to get a lot of indication of where the forward multiple will bottom until probably the first quarter earnings season when we hurdle what is going to be the worst earnings um, number that we've seen all cycle in the most most likely. When I look at the market, I like to look at the trailing multiple, Um, and I like to look at that because it's more indicative of where pricing actually is in the equity market. And what we find is the trailing multiple has fallen below 15 for the first time since 2013. Uh, If you exclude the biggest of the big tech stocks, it's below 13. So we certainly have seen um, pretty considerable repricing in the equity market. What's appropriate for a multiple? Well, you would say given the extent of the balance sheet um, movements by the Fed as well as the rate reduction to now zero, A multiple north of 19 is actually appropriate considering monetary policy. Do I think that investors are going to pay 19 times trailing earnings in an environment of super questionable earnings right now? Probably not. Nonetheless, it does suggest that there is more support to the equity market than is currently being embedded in prices and will probably track back toward that number over the course of the next 12 months. I think the equity market is absolutely now pricing in a worse than average U.S. recession. When I use that trailing multiple number and I take it times the current uh, and and I back into an earnings number from the current price on the index, we're pricing in at least a 22% decline in earnings over the course of the next 12 months.
2: Gina, some unbelievable stats. Appreciate your time this morning. Gina Martin-Adams there, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. we get a view on the Fed we can do that with Bill Dudley what a privilege this morning the Bloomberg opinion columnist and of course former New York Fed president Bill fantastic to have you with us just publishing your Bloomberg opinion column help us define whether the Federal Reserve and its latest moves are successful or not because some people many people in fact defining that success by what happens or what does not happen in financial markets help us do that a little bit more effectively Bill
0: I think that uh, people have to understand that this time is very different than the financial crisis because this is about a big shock to demand in the economy. And the Fed Reserve can't do much about that. What they can do is take steps to ensure that markets continue to function. They can take steps to ease, try to, to, to support financial markets more broadly. But the demand shock caused by the coronavirus is something that the Fed can't address. That's what this, why this is so different than the financial crisis. The financial crisis was about a housing boom going bust. But then that causing stress in the financial system and that stress in the financial system made the economy much worse. When the Fed intervened after Lehman's failure, that would actually help support economic conditions because it actually allowed financial markets to continue to function. This time, all the Fed can do is do its best to keep financial markets working. But that doesn't do anything about the demand shock. And the demand shock is very large, and it's likely to be persistent.
1: Bill, there's also a question, though, about the tactic that the Federal Reserve took. Very few people would criticize the Fed for taking as aggressive an action as they did just because of the degree to this shock. Some people saying, though, they didn't go far enough in terms of reopening their commercial paper lines and trying to provide some corporate funding support. What's your response to that? Well, I think
0: they're assessing what's going on in terms of the functioning of other markets like the commercial paper market, like the corporate bond market, like the securitization markets. But the bar to uh, providing support to those markets is quite a bit higher than what the Fed announced on, on, on Sunday evening uh, because they, those, those require emergency, uh, unavailability of credit. Uh, they're, they're what are called uh, only allowed under what the Federal Reserve Act is called Section 133, and they require uh, the agreement of the Secretary of the Treasury. So I think I'm sure they're looking at it and I'm sure that they will respond if they view that as necessary. But the bar to the emergency lending facilities is is quite high relative to what they announced on Sunday.
2: Bill, I want to do something a little bit different with this interview. Let's pretend you're back at the New York Fed. And I'm a competent lawmaker. I know some people will struggle to imagine that, but let's pretend that's the case. And I've got access to a Bloomberg terminal, and dropping across the terminal just now is a headline, and this has actually just happened, that three-month dollar LIBOR is up just over 16 basis points, the biggest jump since 2008. And I say to you, Bill, 2008, that sounds scary. What does that headline actually mean? Can you just unpack that in really simple terms, Bill? What is going on?
0: I think you have to see how, how much stress you're actually seeing in funding markets. So LIBOR, the LIBOR spread d- during the financial crisis got out to 300 to 350 basis points over, uh, over treasuries, over the federal funds rate. Uh, we've had, seen some widening uh, so far during this period, but nothing like what we saw the, that last time. But obviously this is a, a, an indicator of stress. So you want to look at the LIBOR rate. You want to look at the foreign exchange swap rates. You want to look at what's happening in the commercial paper markets, both to rates and tenors, the average maturity of the commercial paper market. And the Fed's going to have to do what's necessary to keep these markets functioning. I'm sure that they're looking at it very closely. And if, if things continue to deteriorate in those markets, I'm sure they'll respond.
1: Bill, there is a question, though. The Federal Reserve did unleash a pretty big stimulus on Sunday evening uh, in lieu of their meeting this week. And that didn't really ameliorate the stress. We saw the biggest sell-off yesterday since 1987. Seven in stocks. We continue to hear reports about a lack of liquidity in treasuries. What's your response to people who say it hasn't helped? This means the Fed basically is impotent in addressing this current crisis.
0: I think it's too strong to say it hasn't helped. Let's imagine the Fed had done nothing. Do you really think things would be in a better uh, circumstances than we find ourselves today? I mean, the problem fundamentally is the Fed, Fed does not have the right tools for the job. What we need is fiscal policy stimulus that supports incomes to, to underpin demand. Right? What we're having is a very significant demand shock, and that's going to cause a large drop in income for households and businesses. Only the Congress and the administration can provide the kind of fiscal support that supports incomes, prevent the initial shock from accumulating to an even bigger shock as we look further down the road.
2: Can we just end with a little bit on a regulatory relief effort, perhaps, Bill, in the coming weeks? Quite clearly, some big companies are drawing down credit lines, and quite clearly what we'd like is the financial system robustly able to step in and support some of these companies as they look for a little bit more help. Bill, how can we do that on the regulatory side?
0: Well, I think the Fed's going to be basically looking at things like the capital uh, requirements and the liquidity buffer requirements and saying, hey, we have these buffers, but these buffers are there to be used in times of stress. So I think the Federal Reserve will be more uh, willing to allow uh, banks to draw down their liquidity and capital buffers. Uh, the problem is that you know, banks may be reluctant to do so. In a time of incredible stress, uh, it's you know, going to be scary to basically run uh, closer to the edge. So even if the Fed says we're, allow- we're-, we're going to allow you to, uh, uh, to run at-, at a lower capitalization rate relative to your total assets, if we're going to allow you to run with a l- smaller liquidity buffer, it's possible that banks may be re- re- reluctant to do that.
2: Bill, just a final question. You and I did a brilliant segment a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months back actually, on whether the current operation from the Fed when they were buying aggressively at the front end of the curve in T-bills to help alleviate some of the stress elsewhere, that it wasn't QE and you pushed back quite hard. Now they're buying through the curve, can we call this QE now?
0: Well, I think once, you're, once the Fed starts to buy longer-duration assets, I think that you have to call that quantitative easing. But I think the motivation here isn't so much to push down long-term uh, uh, treasury yields and long-term uh, agency mortgage-backed securities yields. It's basically to improve the functioning of these markets, basically provide a source of demand. So people who need to sell tr- long-term treasuries, there's a buyer now, the Fed. So I think this is more about market functioning.
2: Great to catch up to to get your thoughts on this market really, really important conversation with a Bloomberg opinion columnist and, of course, former New York Fed president. Let's bring in Carl Rickadonna, shall we, Bloomberg Economics Chief U.S. Economist. Carl, I'm sure you've been trying to model what a mess we're in right now. Talk to me about how fiscal stimulus could really shape things in the months ahead.
4: Sure, absolutely. So uh, looking back to the uh, Dudley interview in the pre- prior uh, segment, uh, technically, uh, and it's not worth having a debate whether it's QE or not, but the Fed is taking market stabilization measures. They're not looking to stimulate the economy. And so there, there is a case to be made that as big as it is and as far out on the duration curve as it is, uh, it's still not designed to accomplish what QE is designed to accomplish. These are, uh, are reserve management operations on a, manage- uh, on a massive scale to keep the lights on in the treasury market. As we turn the page then to fiscal stimulus, right That's going to be what's required to lift the economy. And to put some numbers around this, uh, last year, 2019, the economy grew by about $830 billion. So when you talk about that same price tag you just mentioned from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, it's basically matching growth in the economy uh, from last year. So this is the appropriate scale of the response Now, the next challenge is the delivery mechanism. Uh, As we learned in 2008, 2009, often shovel-ready projects weren't so shovel-ready, and elegant solutions got bogged down in bureaucracy and other uh, technicalities. Uh, So the priority at the moment should be to use something that is tested and true, uh, and that boils down to one of two options. Uh, The first one is a payroll tax holiday. Uh, which basically cuts your contribution into Social Security uh, from 6.2%, possibly all the way down to zero. Uh, It also could reduce your employer's contribution uh, to Social Security. So by making workers cheaper from the employer's perspective, they're less likely to lay those workers off. Meanwhile, every worker in the U.S. who's paying into Social Security would feel that they basically got a 6% raise. Um, the other approach is just a mass mailing of stimulus checks, which sounds like it should be faster. Uh, but when we did this in the past, back in 0809, 9 uh, the legislation passed in February, and the checks started arriving between May and July. That's still a pretty long gap. Uh, for a uh, stimulus to arrive in the economy. So a payroll tax holiday, uh, we could declare that uh, effective uh, April 1st, the start of the second quarter. Uh, and so it, it it comes in as a trickle initially but it does arrive more rapidly.
1: Carl, there's a criticism that if you give individuals in the United States more money, they're not gonna necessarily go out and spend it because they're not allowed to go out and spend it. They are actually quarantined or self-isolating or, or, or whatever else in order to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. So how is the government's effort really getting more liquidity to the businesses that might otherwise become insolvent if there isn't some sort of liquidity line to get them through this period of time?
4: Well, absolutely. We need a multi-pronged measure. So we need unemployment benefits for those individuals who lost their job. Uh, we need some kind of support for those who have a significant curtailment of hours. Uh, businesses obviously need to have access to lines of credit so they can make their payments uh, a lot of communities are adopting foreclosure and eviction moratoriums uh, so you, you need a, a wide array of uh, approaches here but also what matters ultimately is the price tag and so if you need a big price tag to match those numbers that uh, i laid out uh, a moment ago 800 billion ish uh, then you need a delivery mechanism for that and it's going to have to either be stimulus checks or a payroll tax holiday that doesn't mean that's the only solution. You obviously have to take a, a macro approach, uh, the blunt uh, force uh, approach of uh, fiscal stimulus that I described. But you also need the micro approach, looking at all these different nuances, certain industries and certain sectors uh, that are, are particularly uh, at risk.
2: Carl, in the 60 seconds we have left, is the Fed done here or is there more work to do?
4: I think there's more work uh, for the Fed to do. Uh, what they've done uh, is really ensure that uh, the treasury market is behaving in a deep and liquid uh, trading uh, fashion, uh, but uh, they'll they'll need to at some point uh, probably look into commercial paper and other credit measures like TARP and TALF that we saw in the, uh, the financial crisis. And then at some point down the road, they also need to think about what stimulus uh, would actually look like.
2: Carl, great to catch up with you. Carl on there, Bloomberg Economics Chief, US economist. The data in the days ahead, initial jobless claims coming out in a couple of days. And for me, look, this is going to be one of the most important data points on the planet in the next few weeks. Just how much damage is being done to the labour market to weigh in on that. I'm pleased to say Francis Donald, Manulife Investment Management Global Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy joins us now. Francis, great to catch up with you. Your view on the data going into this real huge economic shock.
5: Well, this isn't a good starting place, is it? We were hoping for a strong January, February so that we could say Q1 was fantastic, Q2 will be one of the worst contractions we've ever seen, and we can pop back up if we have fundamental strength. But Seeing this weakness in February is fairly disconcerting. I will say there are some sizable upward revisions to January data here, and that's going to filter through into GDP. But all this data really needed to tell us was that we were in a strong starting place before Corona hit. Unfortunately, it's telling us the opposite, which is that there was already deterioration. So for those who are teetering on the edge of are we going to get a recession or not, um, this particular data I think is probably going to cement the view that we weren't strong enough to avoid, you know, you know. Visible contraction, and then another contraction after that.
1: Francis, this is important. So you're saying that this data is pivotal in shaping that view because it gives you a sense of the momentum or lack thereof heading into this period of time. Is that right? Well, the
5: whole argument behind why the U.S. was more insulated to the coronavirus, let's forget the, the health component insulation. What I mean is that the view was the U.S. consumer has great jobs, strong wage gains, good savings rate and low debt payments each month. So in order to slow the consumer, you have to imagine a shock that suddenly keeps them at home When otherwise they would be outspending. And the coronavirus is exactly this type of shock that makes it so damaging to the U.S. economy. But this argument that the U.S. consumer was fundamentally strong before the coronavirus hit, I think, is on shaky ground as we see this data come in. We knew job openings were contracting pretty aggressively. We were already, my team, already expecting initial jobless claims to trickle upwards in this period. I think what we're going to see in a lot of this February data is that this perception of a strong starting point is maybe not as solid as many initially believed.
1: Francis, this goes to the uh, discussion and, frankly, the conviction that a lot of people have that a recession is unavoidable at this point in the United States and is increasingly the base case. The question is just now, how deep and how long? What are you looking at to determine the answer to those kinds of uh, parameters here?
5: I'm watching the National Bureau of Economic Research and their lead, Robert Hall, who was on the wire yesterday, saying... We may not need to see exactly two quarters of negative back-to-back growth, that we may need to change this definition of what a recession is. My base case is not necessarily that we see two quarters of negative growth, but that Q2 is such a severe contraction that we see the damage to the economy typically felt over a prolonged recession within a three-month period. That would be somewhat unprecedented, but it also means we may need to rethink this concept of what a formal recession is, what makes us put those gray bar stripes on all of our charts. That needs to be seriously questioned. Is it really two quarters of back-to-back growth that's negative that makes a recession, or is it the extent of job losses that we see? We really need to be reevaluating that. And if we reevaluate that, my sense is we will see something very equivalent to a, uh, a very large recession that may occur in a shorter period of time.
2: Francis, some people worry though that it will trigger a huge bout of deleveraging that will just go on for quite a while beyond the effects of the particular health crisis that we're going through at the moment. What do you have to say about that at the moment, Francis? Are you having those kind of conversations with clients?
5: Oh, of course. We're not talking just about, you know, think about this as an evolution of three types of recession. We started off with concerns about a supply shock because China had fallen. That was what I called the level one recession supply side. Then we moved on, and this is where we are now, to a supply and demand side shock that would create a more pronounced recession environment That's where we are now. But the level three type of recession, again, I'm just coming up with these terms myself, but a level three recession would be a credit crisis or a liquidity crunch that creates more of a financial crisis type of environment. Now, we're not there yet, and the Fed provided a lot of tools that are helping liquidity and funding in that market. We saw that evidenced in the market yesterday yesterday. But there is absolutely scope. And what this market is telling us right now is they're not willing to bring the probabilities of a financial crisis down to zero. It's going to take a while for us to do that. I think we need to see a little bit more from the Fed in order to help us get to the conclusion that financial crisis type recession is completely out of the
1: picture. Meanwhile, people are looking to the federal government for some sort of fiscal stimulus, including the Federal Reserve, with federal reserve officials coming out and saying – we don't have the tools to address this. We are hearing about an $850 billion proposal. Uh, Stephen uh, Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, is trying to expedite through the Senate right now. I'm wondering the concept of a payroll tax. How much does that edify the consumer as, as they try to figure out how to make up missed paychecks and how to make rent during this period?
5: Well, it works if you have a job. If you don't have a job because you've been laid off, it doesn't work as well. Uh, what we need to see in order to prevent this from escalating really quickly is support to businesses. Um, and, and when I say quickly, I mean within a, a couple weeks, not something that in, waits until your tax refund comes through. What we have to prevent is imminent layoffs and we have to prevent imminent defaults. And on that point, we're talking about a matter of one to two months. So that money has to come in fast and furious. It needs to be specifically targeted towards preventing this from escalating to a more severe recession. Right now, my biggest concern is twofold. How do we make sure that we don't see the default rates rise really aggressively? And how do we make sure that layoffs don't come too hard and too fast all at the same time?
2: Francis, Senator Romney proposing an idea that typically would associate with the left, which is handing people checks, a $1,000, get the cash in hand all up front and help them pay some of the commitments that will still be there, the obligations that will still be there at the end of the month, regardless of what happens to their jobs and regardless of what happens to the companies they work for. These bills will come due. Is that the best way of attacking this?
5: It, it is one way, right? Give people the cash as quickly as possible. But it underscores to me how interesting, you know, even just two months ago, Things like MMT and universal basic income were taboo topics that only a small segment of economists were discussing. But now the concept of unlimited deficit spend and UBI are front and center from all political wavelengths. This crisis is acting as an accelerant on a variety of economic and social movements. And so quickly that we're now seeing changes to the way businesses are operating, how customers work, how we think about government spending. This is not a change that will reverse if Q3 magically produces a plus 0.5% GDP number. This is a change in the way that our economic systems will operate, and I suspect this is a somewhat permanent change in the way we think about these issues.
2: Francis, always appreciate and enjoy catching up with you. Stay safe, won't you? My best to you all. Francis Donald there, Manulife Investment Management Global Chief, Economist and Head of Macro Strategy.